electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. And my guest today is another economist I've spoken with a lot over the years, Julia Coronado, who is now the president and founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. I think of Julia as one of the more level-headed and realistic economists in the field. So I especially welcome this chance for her to reassure me about the challenges facing the U.S. economy right now. And with that, Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kelly. I'm really happy to be here. And I, I kind of want to start out, actually, like I was saying, you have a very good real-world perspective. I think that comes from your background, kind of working at, you know, sell-side and amidst markets all the time. Um, there are calls for the Fed to do, you know, multiple half-point rate hikes this year and, and kind of sell down the balance sheet very quickly and other things to, to kind of match the modeling on inflation that we're seeing. Can you talk about why you're only, I think you're in the four or five, you know, quarter point rate hike camp this year. Can you just talk a little bit about what people might be missing who are looking at this and haven't had kind of the real world markets experience that you're, you're bringing to your analysis? Well, I'll start by saying that we just actually moved from five to six rate hikes this year, but we've pulled Ooh. it, we've pulled it forward from, from next year. So you know, one of the questions is with inflation running so extremely high, why wouldn't the Fed not only go to a more neutral setting, whether that's two or two and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, but even beyond that into restrictive territory, which any theoretical model would tell you that's where you would be with inflation so far above target. And the reason that the Fed is not, um, you know, sort of moving in that direction is that there's a lot of other things going on right now. One is that fiscal policy, um, we are in uncharted territory with fiscal policy. We provided because of the pandemic, some of the largest cash support ever uh, to households. That was an important component of their willingness to spend money in a price insensitive way uh, during the pandemic um, and uh, and you know, and and combined with the fiscal support, households not only had money to spend, they only had a narrower set of goods uh, and services that they could spend money on. In particular, they could buy goods, not so much services. They could not spend money on travel, entertainment, uh, leisure, uh, restaurants. They could only sit at home and spend money on goods, and that's what they did. And that exacerbated supply chains, which led to another round of inflation. So there's a couple of other things besides monetary policy stimulus that we think are driving this inflation, a fiscal impulse and a shift in the structure of demand. So what do we see on those other two fronts? Well, the fiscal impulse has gone away. No more stimulus payments, even the child tax credit did not get extended. So we're looking at households losing about a trillion dollars in transfer income this year relative to last year. That's a big headwind. If you put any of that, uh, those numbers in a macro model, it would say that fiscal policy is going to 
subtract two to three percentage points off of growth this year. Now, you know, again, step away from the model. We don't think that that's we're like facing recession risks because of this, partly because household balance sheets are strong, the labor market is strong, so the organic recovery looks very solid. But nonetheless, fiscal policy, the fading impulse, the fading support to households disposable income uh, is, is, we expect, going to play an important role in moderating inflation. It played an important role boosting inflation. It will play an important role moderating inflation. Hmm. Second element, the goods shift. Well, that's been persistent. Uh, you know, we didn't just lock down and then open up. We've been living with wave upon wave. People are still, you know, reluctant to engage in social activity the way they did before. But yet we have been seeing more travel, more spending on services, people finally going to get their hair cut and going to the dentist and all these other services. So we are seeing the shift. It's been slow because of the repeated waves of COVID, but you know, we really do feel like we're making that transition. You do see it in the data now as demand spreads out across a broader uh, range of goods and services. Right you know, households should become more, a bit more price sensitive to some of these much, much higher prices they're being expected to pay on goods. So those are two other key elements. So the Fed is now, you know, kind of very much acknowledging they have an important role to play. They're raising rates. Rate hikes are priced into the curve. So the market is moving ahead of the Fed. They're listening to them. You know, mortgage rates are much higher. Financial conditions are a bit tighter. Spreads are wider. So all of these things are happening. The Fed can do more if they have to, but right now they want to gather some information on these other elements. And then I think let's yeah, add the sorry. war in there. Let's just add, throw the war in there. Now we're dealing with a whole nother source of uncertainty. Exactly. And I want to circle back to the fiscal policy point in particular, but the first thing that I kind of want to build on what you're saying is, and there's probably an economics term for it, but the institution of the Fed itself and its nature um, you know, it's a political body, whether or not it's, in, you know, it has a sort of independent mandate, but it acts in an institutional way. And sure, the Fed in the past has come out with, you know, intermeeting hikes and this and that and surprises, but it's built itself into a Fed that now has press conferences every six weeks and, you know, dot plots that show forward projections and, you know, they talk a lot and they're, so tell me sort of from an institutional point of view, how difficult it would be for them to shift from a posture of, okay, one rate hike meeting pretty well signaled to something that was much more hawkish or much more unpredictable. And, you know, maybe we'll get to that point, maybe not, but how does the way the Fed itself behaves play into your forecast for what they're going to do? So that's a great question. And I think we're seeing exactly what they would do, which is they're going to rotate. They keep rotating their position, right? We're, we're, we're expecting that the dot plot at the March FOMC meeting is going to show six, five or six rate hikes as a baseline. That's up from three in December. So that's a meaningful rotation. Again, that's already priced into the market, but the Fed will not go to the position of wanting to be unpredictable. Chair Powell said that point blank. We are not looking to be a source of uncertainty. Uh, in uncertain times. That doesn't mean they're inflexible to change their position, but they want to do so in a transparent way, telegraph it to markets, 
illustrate it through the data and their reaction function to that data. And so if, for example, the inflation dynamics do look more entrenched through, you know, wages getting connected to prices in a more systematic way, and these other elements don't play the moderating influence they're expected to play, then they can keep rotating. They can add more rate hikes in. Chair Powell said, we don't, they're not gonna start with a 50 basis point rate hike, but they're not shutting the door to that later in the year if the inflation dynamic doesn't moderate. So um, I think what we would see is just what we've been seeing since really when, when did it start about November, right? And it, starting in November where the Fed really started to signal that shift, that pivot, ending QE early, hiking rates earlier and faster. Yeah. Uh, they can just keep rotating in that direction, but they're going to want to do so the way they've been doing, which is methodically, transparently, um, mm -hmm. you know, let the markets absorb it, see how that goes, because monetary policy, you know, they want it to be, <clears throat> they want to see how markets absorb their policy and calibrate their policy alongside markets. Uh, markets are seeing the data, they're seeing the outlook, they're seeing the risks, they're seeing the Fed. The Fed communicates to the markets, the markets say, okay, this is where, this is where we come out. Uh, the, the yield curve, the risk sentiment, all of that will tell the Fed whether, um, you know, whether, where, whether growth is expected to cool and inflation is expected to cool. Yeah. And it's funny you say mid-November or, you know, November-ish timeframe as when this all began, because that's exactly when the markets topped. The uh, NASDAQ topped in, you know, right around mid-November and yes. we're already in one of the kind of, you know, by historical averages, a very typical, if not extended kind of bear market right now. Yes. Um, so the markets are clearly responding to that. Let me circle back to the fiscal policy one, because I, I want to probe the theory behind this a little bit. When I have been talking a lot about um, kind of strong nominal demand and the inflation pressures, I've often tallied up all of the stimulus from the pandemic by both tallying the Fed's five, let's call it $5 trillion balance sheet expansion, and kind of throwing in there the $5 trillion in fiscal support that we've had. You know, okay. some of that was stimulus, some of that was other measures to support state and local governments and things like that. But you know, about 5.3 trillion on the fiscal side. So, you know, you could call it $10 trillion in stimulus, but there's a big kind of theoretical debate about what stimulus really matters, you know, to the economy. And it seems like most of the profession thinks monetary stimulus, Fed balance sheet is by far the more important driver of nominal demand and things like that. Whereas fiscal seems to be kind of a question mark. You and I both with our real eyes in the real world can say, obviously, fiscal had an impact this time around, which is why we're mm -hmm. facing the fiscal drag now. But could you talk a little bit about, you know, both of those forces, the interplay between them and kind of what the theory tells us about how that should affect the economy? Right, right. I will. I'll do my best. <laughs> um, so so first, I, I'll start by saying when you think of let's take your 10 trillion. You don't want to just think about that as a net new $10 trillion into the economy because we were in a pandemic and demand was being destroyed. So part of the goal of stimulus in an emergency situation is to fill that that widening hole. So we, we never know what the counterfactual would be, but I think we can agree that certainly had the Fed and, and uh, fiscal policy done nothing, uh, we would be in a much worse place right now. So right. 
um, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's filling a hole that's, that's growing because there was this shock of the pandemic. So how much is actually, you know, now kind of leading to the kind of above trend inflation is it, harder to say. Um, on the fiscal side, you know, fiscal multipliers, yes, we have these debates over fiscal multipliers and, and what are, you know, how big are they? And it depends on the kind of fiscal stimulus. So it looked like, for example, the tax cuts had a relatively low fiscal multiplier. That is, they didn't stimulate growth uh, very directly or, or investment very directly. It was sort of, we did get the a Trump boost. Ones? Yeah, the Trump tax cuts. You know, we did see growth do okay, do a little bit better, but it wasn't like we got a boom off of that, right? Um, and so one of the things I think we're learning, because we've, again, never done what we just did, which is just give cash to people. Um, and not just a few people, all the people. You give a lot of cash to all the people, and it, it has a pretty big effect. Um, particularly when, for example, the $600 a week unemployment supplement, that was to unemployed people who had lost their incomes and therefore their propensity to spend that uh, cash transfer is very high. They're using it to pay their rent, to make their car payment, uh, to buy their groceries. And by the way, one of the other really fascinating results of this fiscal policy is that we've seen for the first time ever a recession in which delinquencies on consumer loans uh, declined through a recession. Wow. Uh, you know, part of that were programs like the, the forbearance program that allowed people to turn off their mortgages for six to 12 months. There were student loan payments that were turned off. But even if you look at car loans, uh, credit cards that did not have that kind of forbearance, delinquencies are down, uh, down through the recession. So that really, that's a fascinating uh, implication to me of, of this type of fiscal uh, support. Um, so I think it's worth really kind of, you know, obviously we need a couple more years of hindsight to evaluate the full cycle, but evaluating exactly what kind of fiscal policy is most effective, I think we're going to learn, I think what we're learning is that cash transfers to households are a great way to go when you're in a crisis. And building off of this, it, it almost makes me want to ask a little bit about kind of the modern monetary theory that was gaining a lot of traction going into the pandemic. This idea that, you know, at some point it doesn't matter, you can just pursue fiscal expansion in order to achieve social goals. And, you know, it all has a way of kind of harmonizing out and being fine. But what's interesting about everything you're describing is that like you said, we're still waiting to see how this story ends. So it was extremely effective to do the cash uh, transfers and increase the government debt and so forth. What I wonder is at some point, if rates do go up, the treasury from 2% to 4%, for example, on the 10 year, you know, and the cost of servicing that debt gets more expensive and crowds out other parts of government spending, you know, does it, do things come home to roost then? Do they not? You know, we're still kind of pushing at the boundaries of what we can do and at what point any of this behavior constrains the economy. And I think it just goes back to how important interest rates are. I mean, thank God the entire world has huge demand for our debt. It, 
as some economists have argued, our debt is almost just like money for the international financial markets mm-hmm. as opposed, and, and it's a huge boon for us. Lower, yes. Longer term yields are probably a couple percentage points lower than they otherwise would be. And that means taxpayers are freed up to spend government revenues on other sources, at least for now. Right, right, right. And I, and I think that that is the, um, the luxury um, or the privilege, I guess, uh, to use uh, Bernanke's term, the exorbitant privilege of, of, uh, of having the, re- the reserve currency of the world means the fiscal trade-offs we face are not that direct or tied to debt. Um, if you think about uh, the trade-offs that, say, emerging markets face, they do face much more of a backlash through their currency, through their interest rates, um, when they engage in uh, what may appear to investors as fiscally unsustainable behavior. Um, but if you have a reserve currency, uh, then you don't, those trade-offs are just different. And so I think what that tells us is that it's not so much debt to GDP ratios per se, as the institutional stability of a country. Uh, You know, one of the things when I'm teaching my MBA students macro, I start with, um, you know, the US was not a country that was was born with the reserve currency of the world. The the financial history of the United States is one of um, many different currencies, regional currencies, um, regular bank panics and um, financial uh, crises, and the Fed was created um, you know, debated for years and years and years, and then created out of the ashes of these financial crises. And then, then more, we had more crises, and then we created the FDIC. And, you know, we, we created these institutions um, for, to, to uh, ensure that trust uh, and that stability of the dollar. And as we established that, it became sort of a self-reinforcing dynamic. Uh, that, you know, not only did our own citizens trust the use of the dollar, but, you know, as the, as the global economy uh, became more in- interconnected, uh, investors and, and, um, and businesses and consumers around the world uh, be, trust the dollar and look to the dollar for stability. So right. I think of the trade-offs not so much in terms of, obviously, at some point, you know, there, there's going to be those trade-offs you're begin to bind, but, you know, interest rates are, uh, you know, one, they're a policy variable. We've learned that through central banks. Uh, they, you know, if, if interest rates are too high and they hurt the economy, the central bank can intervene. And second, they, the longer term interest rates are based on kind of that medium term outlook and that trust in the currency. And the medium term outlook, you know, it's, it's not one of really, really high growth. Um, and if you trust that the Fed is going to do what it needs to do to address inflation, then, you know, over the medium term, you're not going to have persistently high inflation. And so it's that institutional stability and that longer term outlook that anchors those interest rates. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that, that what we're seeing is reassuring trust in that uh, institutional credibility. But we shouldn't take that for granted either. So, you know, yeah. uh, keeping the Fed uh, as quasi-independent as it is, is a good thing. Um, and having these institutions that are 
you know, have checks and balances to them. We should we shouldn't take those for granted. And and you know, we we, we th those those underpin a lot of the um, prosperity that comes from having a reserve currency and a stable currency. And all of this leads me to ask you about the yield curve, which you know normally in the pantheon of economic indicators is a pretty good one, and certainly was prior to two thousand and eight. And it's, you know, close to inverting. Now I'm referring to the twos, tens in particular mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And by the Fed's own account, because of QE in particular, they think long-end rates are about a point and a half lower than they otherwise would be. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in other words, maybe they won't get concerned about a recession until the yield curve is at negative 150 as opposed yeah. to, you know, <laughs> plus 30 right now. Um, right. How, where would you, where do you kind of put its, its, credibility, its usefulness as a leading indicator these days? Um, I do think it's a very useful leading indicator um, because, you know, I, I'm a believer in the portfolio balance channel. So the Fed's QE doesn't just go into, you know, uh, treasury yields. It goes in, it spills over into other asset uh, prices as well. So risky assets as people uh, as the Fed reduces treasury supply, then people have to invest in a wider range of assets. So the effects of QE cannot just be measured in uh, basis points on the 10 year, but also in just sort of uh, the, the general level of asset prices more broadly. Um, and therefore, because of that, I do think there's signal in the yield curve. That is to say, it's pretty powerful if investors, you know, for investors to put money at work day after day and have long-term yields lower than high, than uh, uh, lower than short-term yields. It's, that's, that's a very, uh, you know, it, it implies a lot of things in terms of market dynamics and, and carry and financing, et cetera, that, you know, when you get to that point, that's a very strong expression of views by investors. So I would say that despite the Fed's QE, um, the inversion of the yield curve definitely has a macroeconomic signal that should be monitored. Yeah, it's certainly not an encouraging one. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, before I have to let you go, you know, could you talk a little bit about being kind of your own consultant now um, in this field. And we spoke for so many years, I think it was when you were at BNP for yeah. a while. Um, and, you know, this has been, you know, a career transition for you. And I think I just love to hear about that. And, you know, if that it all changes the way that you do your economics or just the way in which you can kind of engage with people about it. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I was a sell-side economist. Um, I learned a lot in, in that environment about you know, how we add value to investors. Um, and then I went to the buy side. I was at a hedge fund, uh, Graham Capital for a while. And, and there, you know, the difference between sell-side and buy-side, on the buy-side, you don't have a public view that you need to coordinate with a bunch of strategists and other right. economists around the globe. I mean, that's a constraint. When you're, when, especially when things are moving fast, like for example, right now, uh, if, you, if your view is changing because events are happening or the data are changing, you have to coordinate that with your entire global team on the sell side and that can slow things down. And because of compliance issues, you can't communicate your true thinking necessarily quickly uh, to your clients. So it was nice being on the buy side because your, you know, your clients were just your internal 
uh, portfolio managers and you could, you know, you're, you're sitting next to them. You can say, wow, that data point was really unexpected. Here's what I yeah. take from it. Here's how it affects my view. And you can say that immediately. And then you can, you know, change it as you dig through the details of the data. So your ability to communicate with your clients was very um, uh, much more nimble, dare I use the word nimble. Uh, and then, so, so, but on the buy side, I missed speaking to the broad range of market participants. You know, there's central True. banks, there are, uh, you know, real money investors, there's hedge funds, and they all have different perspectives. There's people who are US centric, and then people who are investing abroad, but are affected by the US. Starting my own firm, I can talk to everybody. Again, so like the sell side, I can talk to everybody. I have a range of clients in the US, outside the US, hedge funds, real money, uh, central banks, and um, and yet I can also be nimble like I was on the buy side. I can say what I think, we can change our view, we can have very open conversations with clients. So it's kind right. of the best of both worlds. And it's been just a lot of fun. Uh, me and, and Laura Rosner, my business partner, who we work together at BNP, um, you know, we, we, we just have really enjoyed this transition. And, and I think that, you know, we're finding some traction. Clients appreciate an independent, flexible voice. And because you're still plugged in to kind of the economics field more broadly, any sort of parting comments on its state right now, you know, the, the last time that I was really kind of closely following along was we had the free economics era, then we had the global financial crisis, and they sort of, you know, one repudiated the other kind of thing. Um, then we had this really slow post-financial crisis recovery, a lot of talk about secular stagnation. Right. Now we have this kind of incredible pandemic era. I just have to imagine there's tons of new research or maybe new interests or you know, I, I don't know if you just kind of have a, a sense for what the field is like these days. I mean, I do follow academic research. Um, my favorite kind of macro research is the, the empirically oriented research. There's a lot of interesting stuff looking at labor force participation. There's lots of great work looking at inflation expectations, how they're formed, how they evolve, how they uh, transmit into the economy. Um, looking at, you know, the slope of the Phillips curve and where we are there. So I think there's a lot of, you know, the pandemic and the greater availability of data uh, has allowed academic research researchers to produce more timely work. Um, and so I've really enjoyed a lot of, I, I think the field has gotten a bit more dynamic. Um, you know, there's still the, 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 the modeling side and, and the, you know, very, very stylized macro models are not my favorite. And to me, they still haven't moved beyond, you know, the constraints that were revealed in the financial crisis of there's so much that's left out of your model when you don't have a financial sector in your model. Um, when you don't have heterogeneity, you know, the, the, you know, distributional implications, the, you know, the relative price issues, you know, all of these things that we're seeing play out right now. Um, you know, there's a lot of macro modelers who are, you know, got, got inflation, quote unquote, right, um, because the fiscal impulse was so large, yet mm, this inflation is not quite Phillips curve inflation, right? It's a very right. unique situation. So going forward, I, I like the more granular kind of 
analysis to think through what are the likely scenarios rather than just you know running it through a mathematical highly stylized macro model and i do think there's lots of great work out there um, going on in universities that's helping me think through those um, dynamics fascinating it's such a fertile period right now for all of that work but also kind of a a I would say unnervingly live experiment. <laughs> yes, unnerving is right, is a good description. <laughs> and how it's all going to play out. Julia, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you again so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Again, my guest today was Julia Coronado. Thanks for listening, everybody. And be sure to follow our Exchange podcast for more chats like this one and to catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern only on CNBC. See you then. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 